and that the shame of your nakedness might not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve, the very thing they're familiar with. You guys are blind. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He lets them know, I'm going to come down on you guys because I love you. And I'm going to chasten you. I want you to come to me and not to trust in the certainty of riches because I love you. I think of Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whose father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. At this point, it's good for them to hear who I love, I chasten. Because it tells us that even though they are lukewarm, he has not spewed them out of his mouth. He hasn't vomited them out of his mouth. They belong to him. A lukewarm Christian belongs to Christ. Now, in verse 19, it says, Therefore, be zealous and repent. The idea of being zealous here is you're kind of lukewarm, you're nonchalant towards everything, then become zealous. Be zealous towards God. Be zealous toward his word and repent. Like you told many of the churches to repent. Five times in these letters, he tells us to repent. Repentance is not just for those who aren't living for Christ to turn and begin to live for him, but it may be in our own lives that we need to turn and repent. And here, be zealous, be fervent. Then he tells them this, which is often used in altar calls, and some say wrongly, but I think properly, and I'll tell you why. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. First of all, it starts with a behold, which you often find in scripture, which you rarely use in real life. When's the last time you told a story that you started with behold? Behold, my dog ate the trash. <laughs> right? But there are so many beholds in the Bible because they're dealing with grand things. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. This is his initiation towards salvation for those who aren't saved, towards those who are in the church who are lukewarm. He's knocking. He's looking for you to respond. He's not going to open the door for you. He's looking for you to open the door for him. He's looking for that response. Now, this is always the case. We are responders to God. God draws and we respond. It doesn't mean everyone that God, some people mistakenly believe that everyone who God draws responds to him, but that's not true. No one comes to the son unless the father first draws him, which means every single person that's ever come to the son has been drawn by the father. There's some real strong, um, some, some real strong, it's a really strong statement that God wants you. Every once in a while, I'll talk to a believer who feels like, I don't really know 
that God wants me or really loves me like he does other Christians. They just don't have confidence in their walk with Christ or what Christ wants for them. But to know that God drew you and you responded, it's not like you're crashing the party. It's not like you're showing up and going, here I am, God, I'm sorry, I'm here. I wasn't invited. Everyone received an invitation. God stands at the door. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. The question is, do you hear him knocking? Is he, is he speaking to you now? That you need to live with some zeal in your life. That you need to renew your commitment to him. That you need to perhaps receive him. Give your life to him. Because if he's knocking, he's the one responding. He goes on to say, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Now there's a famous painting of this statement, which has Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And on this particular painting, there's no doorknob on the outside. And it's presumed it's left off on purpose by the painter because it's not Jesus opening up the door. It's you opening up the door. Now, opening up the door is not a work, right? Theologians would say it's not meritorious, meaning there's no merit to it. It's not anything to be, you know, that, that you would get any reward for. I like to use Christmas morning as an example. When you pick up a present and give it to your kids and they take it from you, that's not meritorious. You don't go, now you deserve the present because you took it from me. Had you not taken it, you wouldn't have deserved it, but now you deserve it because you took it. That's what people are saying or trying to say that when we open the door, we're doing a work. We are not. We're simply receiving what God has done for us. Who calls that work? Who calls receiving a gift, right? The Bible says that it is a free gift, not of works. And if you are receiving a free gift, that is not any kind of work and no one can turn it into work. They tried to, but no one can. You simply, hello, that's not a lot of work. Right? Now I got a door in my house that's kind of hard to open because I've been so lazy I haven't changed the handle that needs to be. So you got to push it all the way up and then give it a nudge. And it's our back door. So your hands are full of barbecue stuff, right? And you're kind of using your knee to, that's work. But this, come on in Jesus. That's not work. He says, if anyone hears my voice, if he's speaking to you and you hear it, he's the initiator, you open the door, I will come into him and dine with him. Now, this is a very powerful phrase from their day. It's not that powerful for us. When we eat, a lot of times we eat on the run. A lot of times when We'll get dinner completely ready. And my wife will say to me, do you want to sit in front of the TV? She doesn't want to do. Do you want to sit in front of the TV or do you want to sit at the table? She wants to sit at the table. I'm like, let's sit in front of the TV. You know. <laughs> Meals are not as big of a deal for us as they were for them. Think about how much they had to be prepared. There's no such thing as fast food. There's no such thing as cooking a meal quickly. It was prepared and it was prepared through, through labor. Then you sat down and you fellowship together. And there's something to that. Today, you can think about it this way. If you choose to eat with someone, it's someone that you like. Now, if you're at work and you gotta go, you're going down to the dining hall and you might just sit with anybody. But if it's someone that you're gonna have a meal with, most likely you like them. Because if you don't like them, you're like, eh, eh. I think I'm, I think I'm booked up. I think I'm busy. I don't think I, don't think I could do it. So Jesus is saying, I want to dine with you. 
He wants to sit down and dine with us. Another way we might think about the significance of this is to think if you were to eat with someone who is well known, someone really respected. I think of the circles of the pastors that I move around in for people to say, I got to have, I've had people tell me, I got to have dinner with Billy Graham. It's before Billy Graham passed away, obviously. But I got to have dinner with Billy Graham. And because there was always a little jealousy inside of me, like I never got to have dinner with Billy Graham, I'd be like, well, good for you. (laughs) But really, I understand what they're saying. They got to sit down and share a meal with Billy Graham. And that is something significant. And for Jesus to say, I am going to sit down with you. The next time somebody says something like that to you, I had had dinner with Billy Graham. Well, I have dinner every night with Jesus. That's like the one up, up, right? Of course, they can respond, well, so do I. (laughs) But there is something significant to him dining with you. When people read that, I open there, I'll come into him and dine with him. Then it seems like they, they take that as being something not as significant. But it was very significant in their day. And it's even significant in our day when meals are less significant than they were in their day. That we are dining with Christ. We're, we're living with him. We're, we're dining with him. And it says, and he with me. I will dine with him and he with me. It's a two-way thing. Verse 21, and to him who overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my father's throne. If you can get past this lukewarmness in your life, then I'm going to grant you to sit with me on my father's throne. As we move on in Revelation, we're going to see that God's plan is for us to rule and reign with him. You, as the church, are called, are called a royal priesthood. Melchizedek was a priest who was a king. Jesus was a priest who was a king. And those in the church are priests who are kings. No king in the Old Testament was ever a king and priest, except for Melchizedek and Jesus. And they might be the same person. Melchizedek may be an appearance of Jesus. I'm not saying for sure, I'm just saying maybe. So we have that position to set with him. And he says, and as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, Jesus said, I endured. I endured the suffering, I endured the shame, and I sat down on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we hear that for the last time, at least here in these letters. This is for you, is what he's saying. He's saying, it might might be to Laodicea, it might be to Smyrna, it might be to Pergamos, it might be to Thyatira, but it's for you if you have ears. Can you hear? Then it's for you. Now, three things in closing. Number one, is Jesus the greatest passion of your life? And if he's not, then be zealous and repent then the statement's for you, that he would be the biggest passion. How do you deal with that? Will you say to him, Lord, I want you to be the biggest passion of my life. Forgive me that you're not. Help me to do that, that you seek him, that he would be that greatest passion. Number two, are you living under deceptions? They thought they were rich, but they were poor. Are there deceptions like that in your life where you think one thing but a reality is something else. And finally, is Jesus on the outside knocking? Have you opened the door? Will you you let him come in? This is is said to the church. As I said, I don't think it's misplaced to talk about Jesus knocking on on the door of, of people's lives to have him and invite him in. 
He's the initiator and we find that in scripture. But he does this in the church as well. Is he on the outside? Because you've become lukewarm and you've become passive? Then let's open up and dine with him and fellowship with him. How could we not be more in love with him and more passionate towards him if we're really fellowshipping with him? Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for all seven of these letters that we've seen here in the book of Revelation. Thank you that we are able to take time to look at what you were saying to the church of Laodicea and how their wealth got in the way and how some of us here may have wealth getting in the way. It may not be a great deal of wealth, but it may be enough to get by. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a heart and a passion for you, to see ourselves as we really are. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.